Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We've had quite a day. We've dedicated babies. We've baptized people. We've eaten churros. We've had fancy coffee with hearts drawn on the top of it. I have no idea how they do that. Uh, I have a very, 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 very narrow skill set, and anything artistic is well beyond me. So I was really impressed to see some of the coffee creations that people were praying back from the cart. I was told before all this big crowd arrived that we might have a lot of churros left. I'm commissioning you to make sure that doesn't happen, okay? Please, folks, I don't need to eat one more churro. Uh, I don't need to take an armful of churros home, uh, but we are very grateful to welcome you. I'm glad that you're here. If we haven't met, I hope we can meet after the service. If you have a moment, I'll be by the churro cart. Um, <laughs> My name is Bruce, and today we're going to do what we do every Sunday at Cross Point. We're going to talk about Jesus with the Word of God that faithfully, historically tells us about Him and tells us the truth about everything it teaches, everything it addresses, it tells us the truth about. And let me tell you on the front side that I'd like to begin by telling you a story of what I call misguided self-confidence. I don't know if it's ever happened to you where you thought you were more capable than you turned out to be. Has that happened to anybody else? Did you ever ask yourself, how hard could it be? And find out that the answer was much, much harder than you had ever imagined or believed? I have a story like that for you, and it's a story, if you've been in our church for a long time, that some of you have heard before, and I'll just beg your indulgence to hear it again. The reason I tell it again is not because I'm bored, but because I think it portrays, as well as anything that's ever happened to me, the truth of the parable that I'm then going to read to you from the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke 18, and because I'm three generations in ministry, I'm just kind of allergic to this point about ministry hype and pastors playing sleight-of-hand games and manipulating people. We get a bad, bad, bad reputation, we preachers, with being manipulative, a little dishonest, a little bit shady. I understand where those stereotypes come from. Sometimes with some people, they're well-earned. But I don't want to be like that, and I would not want to insult you by doing anything like that. So here's what we're doing. I'm going to show you a parable that Jesus taught to people who were self-righteous. The story pictures two people, two very different kind of people, and the point of the story is spelled out by Jesus right at the end. And really, just so there's no misunderstanding, there's no pressure here, certainly no manipulation Jesus told the story to put people at a crossroads. So I'm going to try to tell the story in a way that will do the same for you. The question that Jesus is asking is the most urgent question of all. And by the time you get done with the parable, you're going to find that you're in the story in one of the two people that he talks about. Every person represented in the, uh, in the world is represented by one of the two people that Jesus told this story about. If you can find yourself and identify yourself and humbly put into practice what he very clearly is going to tell you to do, all the blessings, all the love, all the forgiveness, all the mercy that Jesus has promised will be yours. If you can't get there, you won't enjoy any of that. And maybe this is just one step in the journey for you. 
Even though I trusted Jesus when I was just a kid, I well remember the struggle and the journey. If this is one more step for you and you get a little bit closer, I'm going to praise the Lord for that step toward faith. But my real prayer and my best hope is that today would be a step of saving faith for you. That you would take the plunge of actually believing what Jesus told you about yourself, what he told you about himself, and that you would enjoy the benefit of forgiveness and blessing and salvation that led him to tell the story, not only the story, but live his whole life, righteous, sinless life, ending in death on a cross, and then resurrection so that he could give you eternal life. That's what drove Jesus all along. This story is only part of it. But first, here's my story of misguided self-confidence, as you undoubtedly know, because I can't help talking about it. If you've been in the church for a while, you know I grew up in Mexico, and that means that when my parents took a year in my seventh grade year of schooling to come back to the United States and report to their churches, I went through what anthropologists call reverse culture shock. I was coming back actually into the city I was born in, Amarillo, Texas. But for all intents and purposes, even though my name was Bruce Garner, I was a little Mexican kid. I spoke Spanish. I thought like they did. I played their games. I had their customs. I had their norms of hospitality, which are pretty different from American norms of hospitality. And I learned a lot about the United States really quickly, mostly by embarrassing myself. For instance, they did not have Oscar Mayer bologna at our grocery store in Chihuahua, Mexico, where I grew up. So when I got sliced bologna, I was hyped beyond all imagination. And I went around the lunchroom saying, have you seen this? Showing people my sandwich. And they're like, yes, we're familiar. Please sit over there. New kid. Brutal. I also discovered that Americans love sports. And people in Mexico do as well, but they don't put nearly the budget and the intensity into sports that we do. I mean, we organize things for preschoolers. Preschoolers have coaches in the United States. That had never occurred to me that many, many thousands of American children could be professionally coached in a wide variety of games and sports, some I didn't even know existed. And where my story got complicated is... In seventh grade, this will tell you how much things have changed in the United States. In seventh grade that year at Bonham Junior High School in Emerald, Texas, home of the Mustangs, they were teaching wrestling. That was our PE assignment for all the kids. I don't think any PE department in Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, Garden Grove, Westminster is probably teaching wrestling to all the boys. I'm not sure. Seems unlikely. But they taught it to us. And I had two things that gave me misplaced self-confidence. The first was my friend Trace Lamb, who was a ninth grader, my best friend and protector, and he was ranked in the ninth grade as a state, he was a state-ranked wrestler already in the big state of Texas. He was an inspiration to me. He looked like I wanted to look. I wanted to have the effect on girls that Trace had when he walked into a room. I couldn't begin to lift what he did, but I thought, if wrestling will do that, I can become a wrestler. 
The confidence came in because there was only one kid that was slightly dweebier than I was in that entire junior high school. His name was Rob, so when they said, you boys are going to wrestle for the rest of the semester, and we're going to pair you up right now, I very strategically stood right next to Rob, tried to make my shoulders look even more stooped than they were, and we got paired up, and I destroyed Rob every morning (laughs) in wrestling class. As it turns out, he was the only kid I could probably do that to, but I did it to him every morning. And between the inspiration of Trace and the dweebdom of Rob, I thought to myself, I'm going to be a pretty good wrestler. (laughs) Then the school sealed my fate by having open tryouts for the wrestling team. If I could find the yearbook picture, I would find a picture of myself deliberately putting my head back so that my neck looks thick and staring into the camera, the cold, dead eyes of a hardened killer. I'm going to be on the seventh grade wrestling team. Well, they weighed in. I didn't know there were weight classes. I had some vague idea that they decided who would wrestle against who, but I found out One day when they brought out a scale that you weighed in, and I weighed in, and somebody came to me and immediately said, get out of that weight class. Go home and eat. Don't stop eating until the final weigh-in before you compete. you got to get out of that weight class. And I said, why? And they said, that's Lane Meek's weight class. You don't want to wrestle him. As it turns out, Lane Meek was ranked fourth in the state of Texas in wrestling. (laughs) And I'm, I'm me, okay? And I said, I'm not scared. I thought to myself, two things, mom didn't raise a coward, and two, his last name's Meek. How bad could it actually be? (laughs) Well, wrestling tryouts eventually came, and I showed up. I'll never forget what I was wearing because traumatic memories are embedded in memory. I was literally wearing a white undershirt, some little white shorts trimmed with purple, some canvas pony tennis shoes. I didn't have wrestling headgear. I didn't have the shoes. I didn't have anything. I look, if Charlie Brown is dressed for PE, okay, that's, 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 the, that's the picture. And I walked into the gym, and this isn't a PE class. This is a wrestling tryout at a pretty big junior high school in Texas, and I immediately know I'm in trouble. The environment is very, very different. There are boys walking around looking a way that I didn't know kids our age could look yet. I discovered that day that there is such a thing known as intercostal muscles. I didn't know you could have muscles on this side of your body, but I sat down next to a kid who did, and he was decked out in ASICS gear, and he looked like a pit bull that had learned to walk on its hind legs. (laughs) I was very grateful for the weight class, and thought to myself, this kid outweighs me by a solid 30 pounds. Thank God. This is one of the big upperclassmen. Thank God. I'm just a scrubby little pot-bellied, pencil-armed kid. And who knows how this is going to go. And then somebody shouted, hey, Lane, who you got? And the monster next to me pointed at me and said, him. <laughs> that was my opponent. I later learned that they talk about body composition. We weighed exactly the same, but we were put together very, very differently by God and the weight room. I was literally thinking about how he could excuse myself or grab my hamstring and explain that there had been a terrible mistake and I couldn't continue when our coach called us over, said, it's, it's Garner and Meek. 
We started in the stand-up position. He squeezed the back of my neck, and I, I literally thought I was going to die. And I looked at our coach like, are you seeing this? And he laughed because <laughs> what was happening to me was standard. I just didn't know it. What then followed was his teammates, because he had teammates. He'd been doing this since he was five years old. They were called out things for him to do to me. Two problems with that. I didn't recognize most of the names, and the few things I did recognize, I still couldn't stop. He played with me the way a lion may play with the mouse, and when he got done ragdolling me around that little school gymnasium, he pinned me, rolled off the top of me, didn't even look back at me, and I walked out of the gym like this. Misguided confidence overconfidence. Now you'll say, what in the world does that have to do with the Bible? Everything. The parable we're going to read now is actually a parable about men who trusted themselves. This is one of the few parables where before you read the parable, the man writing it down, in this case Luke, tells you why Jesus told the story. Jesus made his way through life and he saw all kinds of people who trusted in themselves rather than in God. And he told this story. And the reason I want to tell you the story is to put you at that crossroads and invite you at the end of the parable and the end of the sermon, which won't be long from now, believe it or not, just to make a really clear decision whether you're going to trust Jesus and believe him or not. And if you do, if you will, to pray to him. And I'd also ask as a favor that you take one of the cards and the seat back pockets and let us know that you've done that. And if you have questions, that you would say that. And if you think I'm all wet and there's a lot of holes in my story and my presentation, you have objections, you have questions, let me know that as well. It's all on the table for your spiritual journey because the question that the parable poses is about being good enough. And not good enough for a wrestling team, obviously I wasn't. Maybe someday I could have been, somewhere, sometime, but not that day, not with Lane Meek and that weight division. I wasn't nearly good enough, but I made the common human mistake that people make spiritually every day, many of them make it fatally, of thinking that they're good enough for God. Have you ever given that any thought? You will meet God someday. Your life on this earth is short. The Bible explains that it's a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it's gone. Life is fragile. I've prayed over miscarriages and attended services for people who are well over 100 years old. You don't know how much time you have. You do know that your time is short. That's why you have to listen to Jesus. That's why you have to answer the question, do you think you're good enough for God. Listen to Jesus tell the story, Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. There's the problem. Spiritual self-confidence. There were some who trusted in themselves that, were, that they were righteous, and consequently, Luke says, they treated others with contempt. Here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
Those figures are well known to people who've read the Bible carefully, but may not be well known to everybody 2,000 years later. Let me tell you who these two characters are. Because Jesus is painting a story of two starkly different people. Neither one of them are good men. But society thinks that the Pharisee is a good man. The Pharisee was the most trusted, knowledgeable expert of God's Word who had memorized more of the Bible and could be more trusted to teach what God had said to Israel than anyone in the world. In modern times, people, if we could put it into modern times, think of Billy Graham with a lot of extra education. That's what people in the ancient world, Israelites, thought of Pharisees. When you call someone a Pharisee in the modern life because of what Jesus exposed about them, you're calling someone a self-righteous hypocrite. That's not the concept that people had of Pharisees in the first century. These are the teachers of Israel. These are the custodians of God's Word. These are the men who hold the keys to open up the doors to understanding and knowing and loving and trusting God and serving Him and someday being at peace with Him when it's your turn to meet Him. And a Pharisee's going up to pray, of course. But Jesus also says that a very different kind of man is going up to pray, a tax collector. Now that's honorable work in the 21st century in our country, but it's not honorable work in the first. Nobody particularly loves taxes or the tax man, but a tax collector in the first century was a despicable traitor. The Jews were under Roman occupation, and the way they financed their own occupation was they had convinced some Jewish citizens of collecting taxes from their own people, knowing they would be despised. They said, it's okay, everybody's going to hate you, but you can charge more than we want, more than you owe us. You're going to be rich. And a few tax collectors had chosen great wealth over prestige, over respect, over their countrymen. They huddled together. Bad guys hung together then and now. That's how it works. If you're a bad guy and you know it, you tend to associate with other bad guys. But this tax collector, based on what happens next, something has happened to him. He's tired of lying. He's tired of cheating. He's tired of sinning. And that's why he went to prayer. They went to prayer, both to pray to God, but with very different motives. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In other words, a lot of churches, sounds like a great church member. Maybe he's the pastor. He tithes. He knows the Word of God. He's at the temple praying and giving thanks to God. But the first thing Jesus would want us to know about this question of being good enough for God is this, and the Pharisee teaches us this. When it comes to deciding and answering the question of whether we're good enough for God, the first truth is this. We all like to put the standard where we can reach it. That's human nature. When it comes to evaluating my own morality, I've discovered that I have a sliding scale. Somebody told me we judge other people by their, by their actions, but other, 
We judge other people by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. And I thought, that's true. See, if I don't come across, if I don't do what I said I would, if I don't do what I should have done, I can at least find it in my heart that I meant well. I was just forgetful. I had a lot of other things to do. I overpromised and underdelivered, but really it's not entirely my fault. I'll take a little bit of responsibility, but not all of it, because at best, I meant well. The other guy, he's a liar. He's lazy. He's irresponsible. His actions, my intentions. I thought I could be a wrestler because I was judging myself by the standard of a normal kid next to me, not by what an actual wrestler, what an actual weight-trained, carefully trained wrestling athlete could do. So it is with morality. If you listen closely to the Pharisee, you're going to find the building blocks of how people, all of us, the problem's not out there. It's in here. If you think this sermon is about somebody else, you'll miss its point entirely. Forget about other people for a moment and think carefully just about yourself and listen to what the Pharisee's doing. He's building his own morality by first saying what he doesn't do. He's not unjust. He's not an extortioner. He's not an adulterer. And I believe him. I believe that at least on those things, he kept his nose pretty clean. And then he says, here are the good things that I actually do. I fast and I give. And if that doesn't, if what I don't do and what I actually do aren't good enough, at least I'm not like that guy. The sliding scale of morality is so powerful that having been a visitor to many jails and prisons, both in Mexico and the United States, I've found something that extends even to the most hardened criminals in two different societies. You talk to admitted criminals, if you get onto this topic, they will all eventually say, I'm not denying I've done some bad things, but the guys in the next cell block, those are the monsters. Continual adjustments and continual comparisons are made because we all like to put the standard where we can reach it. But, number two, the heart of this message and the heart of this parable is this hard, sobering truth. God's standard is so high that not one of us can reach it. And only the tax collector knew it. It says in verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off. In other words, he didn't even get to the temple. He got to the place that was dedicated to God's glory and to God's teaching, and he was humbled by it. He thought to himself, a man like me doesn't deserve to be in a place like that. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. In Jewish understanding, to look to heaven, to speak of heaven, would be to look and speak of God Himself. They had biblical reasons for that. In other words, in his mind, with his conviction, the tax collector doesn't even want to face up to God. Instead, it says he beat his breast, a cultural expression of mourning, of sorrow, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Very simple prayer. Two parts. God, I'm a sinner. Please be merciful. There's an agreement, a confession. I am a sinner and a request. Be merciful to me. 
The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's happening here? Both of these men are dealing with God and talking to God in prayer. Only one of them is acknowledging the truth of what the Bible tells us, which is that God's standard is so high that not one person can reach it. That's all across the Bible, Old and New Testament. Let me show you some examples. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, would you read this with me? The Bible says, Indeed, there is not a righteous person on earth who always does good and does not ever sin. That's the New American Standard Bible translation. Indeed, there is not a righteous person on earth who always does good and does not ever sin. Do you agree? Do you include yourself? That's the question. See, that hard biblical truth that God looks down on earth and sees nothing but sinners, we've crystallized that in an American saying that's a lot softer. We say nobody's perfect. It's amazing. Now, three different services, people have guessed the word. It's that embedded in our culture. Nobody's perfect. You're right. That's a biblical truth. That's evident just by living life. That's evident by being self-aware and searching your own conscience. But the Bible says it a little more bluntly. The Bible calls it sin. What do you think of that word, by the way? Even a lot of people who teach the Bible don't like to use it, even though it's a thoroughly biblical word. And I think we don't want to use it because we think that we're trying, the guy doing the talking is trying to put people on a guilt trip, or the word itself has been devalued because people use it as a joke. It's a biblical word, and it literally means to fail to meet the standard. It means to miss the mark. It's a picture word, if you will, of God having a standard that He has commanded His creation to live by and Every man, every woman on earth having the knowledge of good and evil without fail eventually chooses to embrace things like selfishness and lying and hatred and resentment and bitterness and laziness. It's very, very sobering. It's all across the Bible. Jesus is as severe as any part of the Bible. Let me show you one of the verses that most humbles me in the entire Bible, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. God's a just judge. He'll look at all the evidence. This is just one thing he's going to look at, but God is going to look at every word spoken. And every word you've ever spoken will be known to God. What you've already said has been known to God. What you will say is already and certainly will be known to God. He's going to judge it all. He's going to take it all in. And when you're truthful, God, who is truth, will acknowledge that you've spoken the truth. You've spoken righteously and you've spoken mercifully. Why does this verse scare me so much? Because Jesus said people will give account for every careless word they speak. You know how much I talk? You're getting an idea. 
And I'm a storyteller, and I like to tell jokes, and here's what that looks like in a sinful man who has the gift of gab. I tell stories, and I make jokes, and I hurt people I care about. I embarrass my wife and my kids. They don't want to be the part of the story. They don't want their stories told. And I say to myself, and I say to my wife, I didn't mean it like that. No, but I said it. Somewhere in my heart, I thought the laugh, the story, the good time was worth the risk. Cruel? I hope not. Sometimes. But careless? Absolutely. And Jesus said, you'll answer for it. Every careless word you speak, you will answer. You will give account for every careless word we speak because by our words we'll be justified and by our words we will be condemned. And believe it or not, it gets worse. As I keep looking across the New Testament, I find a verse in Hebrews that speaks about the all-knowing nature of God, the God that made this universe finely tuned for your enjoyment. The God that gave you a conscience that tells you the difference between right and wrong to point you back to Him because He knows and defines what is right and wrong. The God who made you knows everything about you, including, most frighteningly, your intentions and your motives. God has spoken, He has given His Word, and Hebrews chapter 4 says this, the Word of God, in other words, what God has said, the rules God has given, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit and of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let me make this clear with an example. You know how in cartoons, not the animated kind, but the drawn kind, the static kind, if a character is speaking, they'll put a thought bubble over his head with solid lines, and that's what the guy's saying. Are you familiar? Anybody still read the, the funnies? Okay. What do they do if the character is not speaking but thinking? They put a thought bubble, they call it, and those are little bubbles going up, and the, instead of a rectangle, it looks like a little fluffy cloud, okay? So that you, the reader, can know what a character is thinking, because that's part of the humor. Here's what's happening, here's what this guy thinks about it. If you had to go to work, if you had to go to school, if you had to deal with your family all next week with the thought bubbles readable by everybody you dealt with, <laughs> would you want that? If tomorrow you woke up and your thought bubbles were visible, including to you, and you looked in the mirror and you could read what you were actually thinking, would you go out of the house? You'd probably ask your loved ones to leave the house. You'd get a hotel until this somehow got rectified, right? Now, see, that's funny. Why are you laughing? Because it's terrifying. None of us could keep a job. None of us could keep a friendship. We would struggle to keep a marriage and a family together if people knew the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. God does. Every minute. All of it. He sees it all. And if that wasn't clear enough, Hebrews says at the end, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked 
and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must, what's it say? Give account. Paul sums up by saying this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's as clear as the Bible can make it. See, the trouble is that we've been measuring the wrong thing all the while. People compare themselves with one another. If I tried to jump across the Grand Canyon, I'd die. If an Olympic world record holder tried to jump across the Grand Canyon, he would also die. He'd get a little further out than me, but it wouldn't make any difference. Because there's a mile chasm at some points and no human being is leaping in his own strength from one side to the other. That's what it's like when human beings compare themselves with one another. You can trust the judge. If somebody else has done something worse than you have, you can trust the judge to know it and to deal with it righteously. Good judges don't deal with speeders the same way they deal with murderers, but good judges do justice all the time. And God will. He's warned and promised. That's why it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the beauty of the story, the point of the story is at the very end. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The man agreed with God and asked for mercy and listened to what Jesus said. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The acknowledged sinner, the man who asked for mercy, he went home justified. The other man did not. Here's the point of the parable. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the question is simple. Are you going to trust Jesus or yourself? Because the third and final and by far the best truth in this parable, number three, is this. People who trust God instead of themselves will receive mercy. They will. People who agree with God the way this man simply did, he didn't have a long list. He had an open heart. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't even get any closer to the place dedicated to you. I dare not look up to heaven. I know what you said. I agree with you. Can you have mercy on me? Jesus said, both men went home. Only one man went home right in the sight of God. Paul, who was once a Pharisee himself, explained it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true, but look. They are justified by His grace as a gift. Now, Paul's a brilliant writer, inspired by God. I just want to show you something because it seems a little cumbersome. Paul says that people, even though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, people are justified, in other words, declared not only forgiven, but righteous in the sight of God, given the righteousness of God. That's what it means to be justified. Your name is cleared, your righteousness is recognized, and that all happens by, he says, His grace as a gift. And once I read this slowly, I noticed Paul's being really repetitive. The whole point of grace is that it is a gift. Why say by His grace as a gift? Because He doesn't want you to miss it. Because this is where people most stumble over the good news of Jesus. You can hear how much He loves you, how merciful He is, and you'll still want to earn it. You'll say, as many people have said to me, I'd like to meet God halfway. You can't. 
You can't get started. You're already guilty. He already knows everything about you, every rotten thing you've ever done. He already knows it. If you're going to stand before Him and be at peace, the only way forward is for Him to forgive you. And He's going to do that by His grace as a gift. Remember the last time you had a birthday party and somebody was kind enough to give you something? Did you get an invoice after those gifts arrived from your friends saying, hey, that was kind of expensive, could you chip in with 12%? You're laughing because that's ridiculous. The whole point of a gift is it's purchased by another. Both of my sons are getting to the age where they're actually making a little bit of money, and I am so moved by their generosity because neither of them are wealthy. They're just getting started working. So when they give me something from money they're earned, it's so meaningful because I know they worked for it. And I treasure the gift because it was purchased with their labor and their hard work. So it is with the grace of God. It was purchased on the cross of Christ for you as a gift. You don't bring anything to it except your humble admission that you need it. And then, Paul says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's another beautiful biblical term which refers to the price paid to set a slave free. In the ancient world, most people were slaves. And every once in a while, uh, through the kindness of another, someone, or perhaps if the slave was given enough time to earn enough money, he might purchase his own freedom But Paul is saying Jesus has paid the price of your freedom from sin. You're trapped. You can't get out. There's no way out. There's no way up. Jesus will justify you by His grace as a gift through the redemption that He will give you. The question is not whether He can do it. The question is whether you will believe Him. Whether you'll trust Jesus or you'll trust yourself. So we've come to the point in the sermon that I mentioned earlier. I'd like now to close and be done, but turn it over to you so that you can talk to the God who made you and loves you and is warning you, you cannot meet His standard on your own. If you will be at peace with Him, if you will have His righteousness and His forgiveness, you can only have it by His grace as a gift when you agree with Him and ask Him for His mercy. People who trust God instead of themselves will always receive God's mercy. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. The question is not whether He can save, but whether you will agree and whether you will come with Him. Let's pray together. If you're not entirely sure of your standing with God, could I invite you, please, to give up on yourself and believe Jesus? To pray right now, you can use the same words the tax collector did. You can say to God who knows everything, including the thoughts and the intentions of your heart, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God may bring bring some specific things to mind. You don't need to confess the whole list. He knows it all. But if you bring things to mind, good idea to mention them. Have you lied? Have you cheated? Have you stolen? Have you been bitter? 
Have you gossiped? Have you lusted? All those things known to God are known to Him now. If you'll agree with Him and ask Him for His mercy, He will save you. He will say of you that you went back to your house justified. You went home to righteous. If you'll trust Him. I'm inviting you to do so and just call out to Him in prayer. Tell Him you agree with Him about your sins. Ask Him for His mercy.